Okay, my name is Helga Levy, and I'm now a resident of Dayton, Ohio. And sitting here in the classroom of Wright State takes me back to a time a long time ago when I went to school, which was in Berlin, Germany, where I was born and where my family was born for a number of generations. Uh, I grew up just like any other German child. We, uh, my father, my mother, my older sister and I uh, lived in the western suburb of Berlin in an apartment building with seven rooms and a balcony and it's very beautiful. We had, like most middle class people, a maid. We uh, were friendly with our neighbors. My, people, my uh, family had a lot of friends. Jewish and non-Jewish. My father and uh, all of my uncles were veterans of, the, of World War I. They had served in the army before. My one uncle was wounded and one enlisted even though he was hard of hearing. And they were all decorated. And I remember my grandfather had the picture of my uncles and my father with their decorations. And it was very important to him. But it was also very important to him to be the president of a synagogue. So it was all in this place. We were good Germans, but we also were good Jews, just like our neighbors were uh, good Catholics, or mostly Lutherans, some atheists. We had everything. We lived on a quite a big street in, uh, in Berlin. Oh, it maybe was a main thoroughfare, uh, I don't know, like Salem Avenue was here, Far Hills or something like that. And uh, right a block up from me lived uh, Hermann Goering, who was later the Luftmarschall, uh, Field Marshal, rather, of Germany. And uh, a couple, uh, three blocks further was, lived uh, Joseph Goebbels, the uh, propaganda minister. And I remember seeing Goering almost every day when I went to school. And from 32 on, he had two brown shirts standing in front of his apartment. And we used to see him rush out, and he usually wore a camel's hair coat and a fedora. And he was quite chubby by then, but not by half that big as he became later, you know. But he was quite chubby then. and. Uh, Nobody really paid attention. He walked out and the brown shirt saluted and he went in the car and he took off. Uh, we saw Dr. Goebbels, who was um, quite a short fella, skinny, and he had a club foot, so he limped. And uh, he didn't have any, uh, the big thing about him was his brains and his voice. He had a wonderful voice and he was very bright. He gave out all these speeches. So we saw him quite frequently with his kids. He had kids not much uh, younger than we were. We saw him, we, we saw Hitler driving by, or we saw the old President Hindenburg uh, at any big occasion, like uh, any parade or something. They came through our street in, the, in an open uh, car and uh, sat there and waved. And I've seen Hitler speak. I remember once we came, uh, I was walking with my father and uh, 
on this one park in Berlin, and there was, we didn't know there was going to be a speech. We didn't know Hitler was going to be there. And so we were walking by, but, and looking in the back, kind of looking through, that was before the time we wore yellow stars. So two SA men uh, grabbed me and said, come on, little one, you can stand in front and see the Fuhrer better. You know, at that time there was no yellow stars, so I didn't know I was Jewish. And then came uh, 1932, which was my first year in high school, and it was my sister's last year in high school. And you could kind of sense the beginning of a change. Now, my father used to come home from uh, w work, from business. He owned his business. And uh, he looked kind of worried. And downtown, they saw signs with Jews get out. The brown shirts were showing up. And uh, it was a lot of unrest in the country because it was a recession. A lot of people were out of work. Hitler started, um, not he personally, but the Nazi party because he was still in South Germany. He started having meetings, a party with, uh, uh, they give a speech and they also give free hot dogs and beer. And of course that was a big incentive for people who have been out of work and had a hard time making it. So they went to get the hot dog and beer, and they listened, and something sunk in. He promised a lot. We will do different. We will give you jobs. And uh, the main reason that you don't get jobs is because of the Jews. And people say, well, of course, you know, must be a reason. He must have a reason, the Jews. So. Um, the better educated people in Germany and the friends of my parents told him, don't get excited, this is all going to be over with. Uh, he's not going to stay long. They hoped the monarchy would take over. Something would, do, would change. So we didn't pay too much attention. But in 33, one year later, Hitler was elected as a chancellor. And my uncle, who was a physician in that small southern town, was taken into a concentration camp in 33. And uh, for charge was race defilement, which uh, he had a German girlfriend. However, he had also a very good practice, and uh, people were kind of glad to get rid of him, his colleagues. So, he was a, one of the lucky ones because even though he was beaten, he was harassed in the concentration camp for six weeks. They made him sign a paper that he would leave Germany immediately, which he did, and they let him out. And at that time, there were no laws, so he could take his practice with him. He could take his belongings with him. So in the meantime, it got a little bit different in my school, 34, and we didn't start our mornings anymore with good morning and how are you, Miss Schultz, we started Heil Hitler. And uh, the teachers were teaching us now things about the Aryan super race. This was what we heard now every day, that the Aryans are the superior human beings. 
And uh, it made the five Jewish girls quite uncomfortable. It was all of a sudden, we never had paid much attention to each other before, but it was a thing now that we knew we had to stick together. And uh, they even made, did experiments in biology, which was very funny. They wanted to uh, measure <coughs> the girls' heads. We had a strictly girls' school. Uh, girls' heads to have the right measurements for the ideal Aryan. And uh, they did that in biology. And then it turned out a little bit embarrassing because the only girl with the perfect Aryan measurements was named Lily Cohen. So uh, that was about the end of that. So uh, my, mother, my grandmother, who was quite uh, Orthodox Jewish and had seen more uh, in South Germany than we had seen, uh, kind of pressured my parents to uh, put me in a Jewish school, which they did. I became very religious. And my father thought, well, you know, she'll get over it. So, and I did. And then all the laws came. And it was very interesting because the laws at first were for uh, the foreign Jews, not the German Jews. The Jews had come in from uh, Russia and Poland and Czechoslovakia and God knows what. Well, they weren't allowed to do, have a business and, and this and that and go to school. And then it was the German Jews also. They were included. And the very last one was the German Jews were the families of the war veterans. So all of a sudden, we found out we weren't protected. And no matter what our friends said, and they said, well, boy, your father was in the war. He served in the army four years in the war. Nothing can happen to you. Oh, yes, it did. So they, they kind of sneaked it in. They took one liberty from somebody, and after a while, it was everybody. There was no more difference. We could not uh, keep the large apartment anymore because we weren't allowed to have a, a maid working for us under 45 because for fear of race defilement. I figured every Jewish man, uh, with a Jewish man in the house, you cannot have a woman under 45 running loose. So uh, we took a small apartment and uh, my father's business, of course, was going downhill because uh, Christians by then were afraid to come. They come maybe at night, all his old customers. So we moved into a small place. My sister, my sister left for Israel, and my father got sick. He had his first heart attack. And uh, we went through the same thing with the German laws. No nurse under the age of 45. So we had to do it ourselves. And the doctors were afraid to come to the house. In 38, of course, the crystal night happened, which was when that young man in uh, France uh, named Greenspan, I think, killed the German ambassador. That's when the uh, German Nazi government decided they're going to teach us all a lesson. 
and we called it later Crystal Night. You read about it in the books. That means all the stores were vandalized and things thrown out and people arrested at random, completely at random. Now, my father, like I said, our family was born for generations in Berlin and some friends had warned my father to um, get out of the apartment because he could be arrested. But they to also told us that old people would be pretty safe. So my grandfather was safe. Uh, we went to a cousin of my grandfather's, which we had never been in touch with, and they were in their 80s, and we stayed there with them for about a week. We just moved in, and uh, my to my cousin Jenny and Uncle Felix, and it was really strange and we just stayed quiet in the back room and nobody came and bothered them you know they were too old and after a week it was over we knew it was over we went back home and in the meantime they uh, had of course uh, destroyed my grandfather's business and he had to sell it it was now you know get rid of your business so he had to sell it to a big chain. And uh, they took the money, of course, and put it in a certain account so he couldn't touch it. But we were lucky, you know, nobody was arrested and nobody was uh, hurt at that time. The, uh, the pressure, the constant laws coming up. You have to turn in your silver. You have to turn ter uh, all your, uh, I should say silver all your jewelry, everything you owned. You had to turn in any fur coats. This was okay. You almost automatically said, all right, you know, why not? Um, but then the one law, I think, and as a child, this really impressed you and it, it upset my mother more than anything. You had to turn in your pets. This was when my mother was furious, and she was a perfect lady. I mean, soft-spoken, never raised her voice, just old-fashioned German upbringing. But she was furious. We had two little birds. We had a parakeet and a canary. And they were supposed to be turned in, let's say, on the 15th. Well, my mother said, she is not gonna do that. So uh, we found a nice, neighbor, a uh, Christian neighbor, and silently at night, she came and picked up the birds. This, it, it's unbelievable why they did it, but you know, if you have to give away your pets, this is really hard, and it, it's just harassment. Now we were nothing, because we hadn't, we weren't Germans anymore. We didn't have a country anymore, so what were we? Uh, we were lost, and people, a lot of people, and of course it didn't come out, but a lot of people started then committing suicide. A lot of the older people just could not handle it. They knew they had to go to some country where they would have to start from scratch, and they just could not see it. Uh, they had a certain standard of living. They were not about to give up that standard of living. They were not about to learn any kind of language or live in a country which they considered primitive. They could not see it. They rather killed themselves. A lot of them did. 
And the young people, a lot of Zionists sprung up. My sister was one of them. They uh, figured, they were so mad. They said, they take away from us what we have. We have to put something in place of it. So they became Zionists. My father finally gave in because it looked so bad and we all knew it wouldn't get any better by now. And we had nothing to eat and we wore our yellow star and we had our curfew to be home by eight o'clock. And we had a couple of visits from the Gestapo. They come at maybe 10 o'clock at night, knock at your door and look through your closets for no reason. It's just to scare you to death. And, uh, you couldn't hide because you wore the star and you also had the star outside of your door. So people knew right away if they go in the apartment building who lived where. So um, my father finally allowed me to join the Zionist, which he did, never did before, to go uh, to the country in preparation for leaving to Israel for living in a, in a, on a farm, on a kibbutz. So I went to the country, which was, oh, it's just wonderful. Mm -hmm. In the meantime, my father was not well, and my mother was forced to do labor, which was very, very hard on her because she was in her 50s. She had never worked a day in her life. She had very bad varicose veins, and she had to go and uh, fold laundry at the biggest mental hospital in Berlin. I mean, she had to take the uh, subway for one hour to get there and then work eight hours, take it an hour to go home. And she, I mean, physically, it was very, very hard on her because her legs were just so bad and swollen so bad and she had no choice. And of course, she had to meet people she had never met in her life before. She couldn't understand what they were talking about half of the time, but she was a very sweet lady. Everybody loved her, so that was okay. And a cousin of my father's had moved in with him, uh, who was a 40-year-old spinster who never had too much before. Well, she took care of them. That's when I was away. And my father was his heart condition, was not able to work in for what, some reason, whether they did not make him work, well, he couldn't have. So after uh, two years, they closed the uh, farm where I was working, and I thought, well, I better get home and see how things are. And I did go home and uh, couldn't really, hated to be there, be so restricted with the yellow star and the curfew. And I went to another farm for another half year, but I had to come home. So we had, of course, the, uh, uh, everybody in Germany, when they live somewhere, they have to go to the police and tell them where they live. So it, I was home for a week and I got my orders for forced labor and I worked in the munition factory, very well known Siemens worker. So, uh, I went there early in the morning and uh, we had to wait in front of the building till the four lady came and let us in, the group of us, and then we were locked in in the one floor where we worked. And twice a day they took us to the bathroom in the group. We did not go by ourselves by any time. And at night they marched us out again. That was, uh, that was forced labor. And then we had to go home on the tram 
and uh, I think that might sound familiar to you. We had a ride in the back of the tram <laughs> uh, with our yellow star. We were not allowed to go inside uh, and sit down. We, we had to sit in the back. We had to stand in the back. And of course, we got a lot of uh, flack from people. So uh, that went on till August 42. And it was on a Friday. It was August the 13th and 42. I came home from work on Friday. Oh, boy, Friday, wonderful. You have the weekend ahead of you. And uh, we had all just settled down. My mother always was lying down on the couch because her legs hurt so bad. My father used to cook. He was a better cook than her anyway. And uh, my cousin and I had came home from work. And we were just relaxing. It was Friday night, which is the hol Jewish holiday, beginning of the Jewish Sabbath. And. Uh, we usually ate and maybe played some cards or we had some, uh, you know, something to talk about. We talk about my sister over in Israel or whatever. So all of a sudden, it knocks at the door. And at these times, whenever it knocked at, anybody knocked at the door, feel it right in your stomach. It, it was scary. I don't know if you ever feel that way. I think if you feel live in an unsafe neighborhood like I did, you feel the same way. Somebody knocks at the door you don't expect, you get just, your stomach turns. Well, this was the real thing. It was a Gestapo. And there were two men, and they, they were civilian, of course, as Gestapo. And they said, you got two hours to get ready. We got orders. And uh, it was for both of my parents. It was neither for my cousin, nor for me. And my mother started crying. And she said, how come? Can our daughter go with us? Can she go with us? And they said, no. She works at the munition factory. We need people there. It's just you and your husband. But you got two hours to pack. You can take one suitcase. And they left. And the thing about it is you can tell how much, how scared we were because these people just went in and say, you've got two hours and get ready. But you had no place to go and hide. You could shoot yourself. That's all you could do in the meantime. But otherwise, there was nowhere to go. So we packed the suitcases. And my mother was crying all along. And my dad, took his nitroglycerin pill, and he was just terrific. He was as calm as could be. And he said, it'll be all right, be okay. And we packed their suitcases with some warm clothes, you know, sweater and blanket. And my mother said, put the pictures in there. You know, she wanted a picture of my sister and myself. And, uh, I think we just sat for two hours and we were just holding on to each other. We didn't know what to do. We didn't know they were going to be killed when they were taken away. We thought they send them somewhere to Poland in some camp where they do labor. We worried about my father's health.
But we didn't know they were going to get killed. But it was just about the saddest thing you can see these two hours. When you sit there and you wait and you know that's it. And of course they came back and uh, we took the suitcases and they had a truck where the people, the other people were sitting. They were all sitting in the truck in the back and with their little suitcase. And uh, they went on there and I said, can I go? And they let me go. So they were, the uh, uh, meeting point was in an old synagogue. So we went there. And uh, I went right up to the door with him. I carried my father's suitcase. He wasn't allowed to carry anything. And at the door, of course, my mother was always crying. She was still crying when I started crying. And I, I want to go in. And this, uh, you know, SS guy just gave me a good push and said, you better get going. Are you going to come in? You never get out again. So he made me go. So uh, my sister and I, my cousin and I, we went back home. And that was pretty rough when I think of it. That was, that was one of the times I really didn't know what, what to do. I know we had a balcony, and I went out on the balcony, and I thought, oh, there's a God, you know, why? Why? I was really tempted to, 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 to jump, to, to say, well, what's the use? But, you know, when you're very young, you don't, you still have hope, and you think things going to be better, you know. So I just, uh, just went in, and my cousin tried to calm me down. You know, she had lost her parents a long time ago, and that was it. So, next day we try to go in and see my parents. I know that shipment of Jews was not, has not left yet, but they wouldn't let us in. And later on I talked to a man who told me my father was just, just terrific. He calmed everybody down, even as sick as he was. And, um, oh, maybe 20 years later I found out from the German government that this particular train had never uh, gone to a camp. That was one of the trains they brought at a spot to, towards Riga and just gassed it on the rails because they were mostly older people and not well people, so they couldn't work for them. So they just gassed everybody. And the only thing I can say is I was glad that my mom and dad were together. in the factory, um, I worked on, I, I stayed off the next day and I was sure my landlady is going to have me arrested, but that was one thing, she didn't say a word. But what happened to me is that uh, the day after my parents were taken and I was alone in the apartment, I had some visitors, that was again the Gestapo, and they said, now, you cannot stay in this apartment because you're only one person and we need the room. And uh, also, these are not your furniture. This is going to be picked up. I mean everything. I mean not only furniture, but silverware and crystal and, uh, you know, tablecloth or whatever, linens. Uh, we're going to pick it up a week from now. So. Uh, one Gestapo 
I mean, was uh, actually pretty nice to me because I was so flabbergasted, I didn't know what to say. When he asked me, is that your furniture? I said, no, you know, it wasn't my furniture. And he said, well, I think this is your bed, isn't it? <laughs> and this is your lamp. And I said, oh, yeah, this is, it certainly is. So I got to keep one bed and a lamp and I think a dresser, and that was it. And they gave me a week to get out of there. So I went back to work and uh, I said, I need a place to live. I have nowhere to live. And that was not very easy. Um, everything was overcrowded and Jews were not allotted a lot of room or anything like that. Well, anyway, I found a, a room was through some friends who knew somebody had a room and I moved in there with my bed and my <laughs> lamp and uh, the, uh, the Nazis picked up all our stuff and it was delivered to some of the nicer villas in uh, the suburbs. They, these things went directly to, we had some pretty nice furniture and some pretty nice crystal and uh, there were some Nazi officials who appreciated fine things and they got that for free. And then one day uh, we came to work and there were a whole bunch of new people sitting there and we could tell they were not from Germany. They were picked up the streets by the German soldier all over the Balkan. They picked up people off the streets, uh, women, young women, uh, from Czechoslovakia, from uh, anywhere, Croatia, Poland, uh, Ukraine, anywhere. Whoever walked the street, they say, come on the truck and go to Germany. And our four ladies said, now you're gonna have to teach these women your work. First of all, they didn't speak a word of German, and they weren't exactly thrilled. They put them in a uh, camp next to the munition factory. These people had nothing with them except what they had on, you know. Didn't speak the language. So I came home that night, and I told the people I lived with what had happened, and they said, this is the beginning of the end, because as soon as these people know how to do that work, and it isn't that hard, you know, fold little wires. Um, they're going to get you, all the Jews, get them out of there. And I figured they were right, but I really didn't know what to do about it. And then something, you know, my life has been real strange. I never made a big effort. I, I guess I'm a believer in fate. This is what happened to me. Uh, about two months before my father was killed, he had met a gentleman through a business, through a mortgage deal on the house. who was a German gentleman who thought my father had gotten a raw deal and came to our house and uh, talked with him. The men talked. He was not a Nazi. He was just appalled by the whole thing. And he had come back once, and the third time my, he found out my parents were gone. And he said to me, Boy, I sure wish I would have known it. I blame myself. I have a farm outside of Berlin. I could have hidden them. I could have done something. And um, he had given me his card. And he said, if you need any help, you call me. And I remembered that man. I just by accident saw that card. And I didn't think much of it. Wrote him a card. And I said, dear Mr. Krosik, I would like to see you. Well, he answered. He came right away that weekend. And I said, this is the situation. They're going to 
they're going to uh, arrest us right at work and take us, send us to a camp, and I have nowhere to go. And he said, okay, uh, I have a place for you to go. He owned several apartment buildings. One of them had a, a little shop, a smoke shop on the ground, and a single woman with a kid lived in there. So he took me there, and he told that lady that I was his niece. And I was from out of town, and uh, that I was bombed out. At that time, they had bombed a lot in the west of Germany. So uh, I had lost my belongings. Could I stay there? He even paid uh, 10 marks for a room. So I stayed there uh, for a little bit. And of course, I had to lie a lot. I threw all my things away. I threw all my identification away, every one of it. I didn't have any ID, and uh, I had to give a new name. I took my mother's maiden name, which was real German, and uh, of course I had to tell her I worked because every young person was involved in the war effort, either in the army or at work. So I said I worked, and I spend about nine hours wandering around the streets of Berlin and went to a movie and went in the, in the, uh, in the, can't think of it, sat in the buses and went to museums and went to parks and went everywhere. So, um, that was it. So I stayed with her for a while and then somebody, and then, uh, I ran around. I still could visit some of my Jewish friends in daytime, but little by little they were all taken. Since there was nobody left, I knew one other Jewish guy who lived like I did, and we ran into each other occasionally. And I knew one Jewish girl who was there who was helping the Gestapo, and she went ahead and two Gestapo men followed her, and she pointed out the people she thought were Jewish. And I still don't know why she didn't turn me in. She knew me. She knew me very well. But I was lucky. She was killed later on, too, after they used her. It didn't save her life. So, in the meantime, we had the bombings. We had the English and the American bomb day and night. And every time you come out of the bunker, you don't know if you still got a place to go to because half of Berlin was burning. And uh, we were still lucky. But somebody became suspicious. And uh, I had to move, and I had to move I don't know how many places from there. I went, I lived in places I thought I'd never would see in my life. I had to pay for some of the places, pay very highly, uh, where people did it for the money. I had met people who did it because they were convinced that Hitler was wrong, what he did to the Jews were wrong, who helped me. I even had a former relative help me for a long time. My uncle was married to a Christian lady, used to be married to her, was divorced, and she helped me. Her aunt helped me, lived out in the country. And uh, it was kind of like walking a tightrope. 
You always think like somebody's asking you for your ID, and then, well, if not, you get a bomb on your head, so you don't quite know where to begin. Okay. So I got through that time, and it was about four weeks before the war was over, and I went back to the first lady I had stayed with. Uh, because she wrote me, she knew by then I was Jewish, and she said, come over and stay with me. And I had a hitchhike across Berlin, which took a whole day. There was no more cars going. It was already shooting the machine guns where the Russians were there now. So anyway, I got back to the lady where I first started with, and we, we lived in the basement because the Russian artillery uh, was shooting at us. So in the last minute, the house got firebombed, and we had to move across the street. And uh, she lost everything there, but we got her little girl out safe, which was fine. All of a sudden, it was quiet. It was real strange. It was such bedlam for so many days. And all of a sudden, it was quiet. And uh, a lot of people had the white flags out. So a couple of guys went out with white flags. And uh, there the streets were just deserted. You know, you saw. Well, the streets were all destroyed anyway. No house stood full, and uh, a lot of trash around and everything. But there they were with the white flags, and the Russians with their machine guns marching on the street. And we thought, well, I thought to myself, I made it. You must not say that you now walk the final way. Because the darkened heavens hide the blue of day The time we've longed for will at last draw near And our steps as drums will sound that we are here From land all green with palms to lands all white with snow We now arrive with all our pain and all our woe Where our blood sprayed out and came to touch the land there our courage and our faith will rise and stand. 